0: This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, thanks for tuning in. We're back in the book of Hebrews again this week, picking up with our study. Last week, we went um, with a brief overview, and we talked about the whole book really just kind of getting a bird's eye view of the thing, and ended with some points about uh, the role of angels in divine revelation. So I want to begin in chapter 2 and read those first three verses there. And the writer says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So I thought it'd be a good idea to uh, start with this quote from this text to, to see where we're headed, because this is where the Hebrew writer is making the application with regard to all the points that he's just made about angels in chapter one. So he's not just talking about angels to inform us about angels and give us a glimpse of what their roles are, but he wants us to understand there's an urgent need here and there's a a practical message that we have to understand. It's always good to know where you're headed. So in chapter one, the Holy Spirit cites scripture to prove Jesus's supremacy to angels before bringing home his point as to the implications of Jesus's supremacy to angels and how that extends to the word that was spoken first through him and then his chosen apostles versus the word spoken by angels. So recall, if if you go back to chapter 1, the writer begins the letter by drawing our attention to how God has revealed His will in the past. So, how God spoke to people, how God communicated His His will and expectations to people in the past. And He says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, and He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then he immediately says, having become much better than the angels, because he's inherited a more excellent name than they. So a glance into the Old Testament reveals, again, God spoke to the heads of families like Abraham, uh, Job, Jacob, Isaac, others you know that we're familiar with, and th- and then through the prophets also, as the writer mentions, the prophets that God chose and appointed, and other times he used different means to confirm his word. So sometimes he would just it would be a direct communication from heaven, or a whirlwind, or a still small voice. In Elijah's case, you know Elijah experienced you know different different ways, dreams and visions. You know as he revealed his will to Joseph and men like Daniel, uh, written tablets like that he gave to Moses and to all, all the people that he that he wrote with him by that God wrote himself, uh, signs and wonders. Uh, like Gideon with the fleece that was wet and dry, floating axe heads, talking donkeys. So, uh, you know, the the writer doesn't name all that, obviously, but that's those things and more certainly included in the way God revealed what He wanted people to do. Many portions, in many ways, diverse manners, to be sure. So, there's too many really to, to list here and get into that. But the point is, the writer saying this is how God did it, and the point is is that we shouldn't be looking for these types of things today. That's a major thing to consider. So the writer's making a distinction here, not only between the message of angels versus that of Christ, but also uh, the, the, the how or the way in which God did it in the past versus now. So, yeah, there was all those things in the past, but in these last days, notice the writer uses that phrase, in these last days, God has spoken to us, verse 2, in his Son. So make no mistake, these are the last days that you and I are living in right now. We're on the other side of what the Hebrew writer is writing here, the other side of the coming of Christ and his resurrection and ascension. and this is the last hour. So and, and the Hebrew writer isn't the, the only person to use this expression. last days, last hour uh, in in time. So first uh, John two and verse 18, for example, John will say that it is the last hour. Uh, Acts 2 14 through seventeen in these last days. Peter uses that expression also in his in his message to uh, in the first gospel sermon on Pentecost as he's preaching Jesus, Peter qualifies the time that that they are living in right now in that first century that those were the last days. And so it means that there's there is no more revelation to come. this is the last this so what Jesus said and did came with finality. And this is God's ultimate and final revealed will to man, before He returns, before Jesus returns to end time and His this creation, this universe, and we all receive our eternal destinies. So that that brings us that that brings our focus to where it should be, to Christ, right off the bat. And so that's that that's the writer the writer's point is not to diminish the importance of the old testament scripture because that would undermine his own use of it in the very next verses and throughout the letter remember it's he he uses it dozens of times throughout this letter and then 13 chapters dozens um so every everything he's not diminishing the importance of that but he the the emphasis rather is everything we need to know in order to be pleasing to god is in this final revelation of of jesus christ and the men whom he chose to be led into all truth, and, and give that to the world. So this revelation is certain. It is final. And you see New Testament writers acknowledging this uh, themselves as well in places like Second Peter 1 and verse 3. God has given us all things, all things pertaining to life and godliness. So that was true. That was true in Peter's time when he was writing it, and nothing has changed. So it's true now. And, of course, Jude 3, where... Jude says to contend earnestly for the faith which has been handed down once and for all time, once and for all time. so that this revelation is certain it's final. So how does christ how does Christ speak to us if in these last days God has spoken to us and his dear son? Well, if you read a few texts like john twelve forty nine through fifty and mark sixteen fifteen and also verse twenty, you're going to find the answer. And it's no different than what the Hebrew writer calls the word spoken. So I'm just going to turn over there just for a minute to that that first text that I mentioned, John chapter 12. And you're certainly welcome to turn over there with me on your iPad or your own Bible uh, that you have. I'm using my my physical Bible today instead of my iPad. But we're going to John 12 and verses 49 and 50. John 12, 49 and 50, which says... I did not speak on my own initiative. Jesus says, I did not speak on my own initiative. But the Father himself who sent me, he has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. Uh, So there it is, the message that Jesus was giving in in his time as he spoke as a man. He is showing that it is with divine authority. It didn't originate with him. But it is from his his heavenly Father, and if you back up to um, verse forty-eight, which I should have read before verse forty-nine, he says, "Jesus says this: He who rejects me, and does not receive my sayings, has one who judges him. The word I spoke, is what will judge him at the last day." So there's the standard that he is that he's putting before us, and again he's proving the origin of that message that it is divine, that it is again the standard by which. All of us are going to be going to be judged, and so the point is, pay attention to what he said. The words have been written down. God has preserved them for us, and now it's up to you and me to dig into that word, to examine it carefully and eagerly to understand what God's will is. In Mark 16 and verse 15, Jesus says this, He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And then again in verse 20, it says they went out. And they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Now, that's an important point because the Hebrew writer is going to do do the same thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the same answer that you find in those passages is the same answer that the, the Hebrew writer gives to the question, well, how does Jesus speak to us now? against the word spoken first by the Lord, then by those who believed. Look at verse 4 in chapter 2. Well verse verse three verses three and four again he asked the question, how are we going to escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at first spoken through the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So Christ speaks to us through his word, what we call the Bible, and God speaks to us in these days and these last days in no other way. Now that's going to be offensive to a lot of people I understand but the Bible is pointing us here that, that this is the answer that you shouldn't be looking for signs in the clouds or trying to decipher or decode events in your life and circumstances as God trying to uh, speak directly directly to you so there's there's much to be learned that's an important this is a very important point because it removes all subjectivity from this interpreting what God's will is. It's something that's objectively termi- determined. And that was true in the Hebrew writer's time, and it's true in our time. Now, these men, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were moved by God himself to write down and reveal the mind of God. If you look at First Corinthians chapter 2, around verse 13, if memory serves, that's what Paul is saying. They, they were revealing the mind of God, 2 Peter 3, 16 through 18. He understood that he was doing the same thing and that Paul was doing. They were they were on the same page, and uh, they were revealing the mind of God, and thus their words bear the force of God's authority. And once their word was confirmed, as the Hebrew writer is saying here, well, then that that should be sufficient for us to accept it as the word of God. As the final authority for our lives, so there's much to be learned here um, about revelation, and I think there's also much to learn be learned about the nature of Christ, especially in verses two and three, uh, because surprisingly, uh, there are many people who profess to follow Christ, but who would deny some very fundamental things about His identity. So just look at verses two and three for a moment, and you see that Christ here is described as the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things in verse two, verses two and three, and he has always been the possessor and sovereign of all things. So that tells us something about his nature, doesn't it? That he is eternal. And what is more, also, if we belong to him, then we are also heirs with him. Uh, so he's described as an as an heir of of glory and, um, uh, you know, honor and this this special position, and his people in turn also. Who belonged to him had this same expectation in places like Romans 8, 16, and 17, Paul says that if we uh, suffer uh, suffer with him, we'll also be glorified with him, and we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And I'm paraphrasing what he says there, but Romans eight, sixteen, and seventeen, that's it's not um you know the only passage that makes that point. First Peter one, three through five, Galatians four, one through seven prophecy psalm twenty four and verse one so um it is it is through Christ that we have this hope and expectation for eternal life and the forgiveness found in him that we can uh find glory with him in the end when our time is through here and it is also through christ notice that the writer says that God made the world, and so he you know christ is not just he wasn't just a bystander he wasn't just a a passive kind of observer but he was he was there in the beginning in genesis chapter one before time even began so he's co-eternal with his father he is as much responsible for creation as the father and the holy spirit he was an active participant right if you go back to genesis 126 you find that phrase let us make man in our image in our image and notice what the Hebrew writer says here that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And again, he upholds all things by the word of his power. So these things these things would not be true if Jesus were not God. is the point. He is God. Um, he has all the the attributes of deity, He's all knowing, he's all powerful, He's eternal, He's unchangeable. He is God. We know him to be the Son. Uh, but this necessarily means being equal to God, as John says. When Jesus, in John chapter 5, when Jesus was calling God his own father, his original audience understood he's making himself equal with God, right? So, Because there were lots of people who made that claim, you know, throughout history, really, the Pharaohs and Caesars, a lot of people in power, and the crazy people who claimed to be God. But Jesus wasn't crazy, and and by and large, those other people like Pharaoh and like Caesar, who would claim some sort of deity status, they what they were essentially saying is that I am a god among many gods. Right there was a, there was a pantheon of of gods in in those systems. But Jesus, being a Jew, when he said God is his own Father, he was talking about the unequaled, unparalleled, Almighty, Eternal Creator in heaven. Right. He was saying that I I am unique in that way. I'm not one God among many gods. In other words, I am the God with my Father and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. So literally, He is the the outraying the outraying of God's glory. He's the very expression of divine light, and that's exactly how He is qualified in, in, at the beginning of John. Right? If you go to the prologue of John's Gospel in John chapter one. Um, you know he was the light of the world, and we saw his light. And we saw his glory. Again, I'm paraphrasing that. You can go back, but that's exactly how John qualifies Jesus. He doesn't. He doesn't use the phrase that the Hebrew writer does, "radiance of God's glory," but that's the point that he's making. Uh, Matthew chapter four. Another gospel writer also makes that same makes the same point about Jesus from prophecy that those living in darkness have seen a great light. Matthew four sixteen. You know Moses once asked to see the glory of God. And he was refused because it would have meant certain death in Exodus 33 and verses 18 and following. And God says, no, you can't see my glory. Nobody can see my glory and live. And then he says, what you can see though is my goodness. I'll cause my goodness to pass before you. And remember Moses in a rock and God puts his hand over him and covers Moses and all his goodness passes uh, before Moses. And then Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is shining and uh, it's just some incredible things happening that are very difficult to understand. But the point is is that uh, God's glory could not be seen directly because it would have meant death. Flesh and blood cannot withstand, let alone behold, the presence of the eternal God. Paul says this in, in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16, that God lives in an unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. That's incredible. Yet the word became flesh. That God, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one can see or has seen, became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we saw his glory. The glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1, 14. So Moses was refused and and could not look on God's full glory. But The Lord, again, allowed his goodness to pass before the prophet. And John connects, the the gospel writer John connects the glory that he witnessed in Jesus with the grace and truth that Christ showed in his character and the way that he lived. And so the glory of God is not bound up in his appearance exclusively, this idea of of an unapproachable light. But the glory of God is also bound up in his character, who he is what he stands for and we can behold that glory in the same way Jesus said anyone who has seen me think about this anyone who has seen me has seen the father Jesus says when Philip said show us the father Lord and that's enough in John chapter 14 and verse 9 and Jesus says how can you say that how can you say show us the father because if you have seen me you have seen the father why because he's the exact representation of God And he upholds all things by the word of his power. He sustains and propels creation forward continually. The way that Paul put this in Acts 17, in verse 28, he says, In him we live and move and have our being. So should he ever decide to cease sustaining us, we would just literally fall apart. Literally. And so the writer goes on to say, Also here, after talking about, making some some points about the nature of Jesus that have tons of implications, he says this also, that he made purification for sins, verse 3, and sat down at the right hand of God. And so by his atoning sacrifice, he made redemption possible for all people. He made it possible for us to come out of the slavery of sin, Titus 2.14. And what's significant you know this phrase that he uses what's significant about sitting down at the right hand of God well that's the highest place of honor the the one in that position has all authority and this is how this is what paul associates associates it with that this position also has to do with um Christ' interceding for us in ephesians 1 20 through twenty three in romans eight thirty four at the right hand of God Jesus who intercedes for us so Jesus has inherited a better name than the angels he has more authority. He has this great position. Um, and, and the Holy Spirit then goes on to offer several proof texts to this following question in verse 5 that we haven't read yet. So he says, to which of the angels did God ever say, you know, X, Y, and Z? Uh, which... Which, uh, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So this is where he begins this kind of string of Old Testament references and prophecies that spoke to Jesus' identity to prove here uh, that Jesus is exceptional and that Jesus is supreme to all other angels and people who came before because verses 1 through 3 that we just saw a moment ago, he is God in the flesh. You know, it's strange how some folks take an issue with the the silence of scripture as if it were a fallacy, but this this is exactly what the Hebrew writer is doing here. He asks the question, to which of the angels did he ever say? In other words, if you can find if you can't find it, it you know, it isn't there, and if you think that the angels are greater than the Son of Man, you can't substantiate it with Scripture because Scripture is silent on that on that point. And so that we have to conclude that's not the case, that what is said about Jesus is true, not what isn't said about angels. The Holy Spirit takes us to Psalm 2. Again, you are my son today, I have begotten you, in verse 7. And at first glance, we're probably inclined to think, well, this is a verse speaking about the birth of Christ, and that would be reasonable. That would be reasonable because Christ was, you know, he came into the world, he was born as a man, he was made um, in all things to be like his brethren, as the Hebrew writer will go on to say, uh, in this in this book, and so anyway, at first glance, we might think, well, let's talk about the birth of Christ. But actually, that psalm is applied and is about the installment of a king, not the birth of one. So so the um, the begotten viewpoint is about the installing someone or establishing someone as a ruler with authority, not a ruler with authority being born um, in the way that we think of being born. And so it's a it's a poetic saying of this was God's choice his anointed one to be his ruler. And so the first readers, you know, would have would have immediately associated this quote with royalty, not with physical birth. They would have associated it with well he's talking about God's anointed. Uh so we can get even more specific also with this passage and see exactly when this happened in Acts chapter 13 verses 32 through 34 when Paul quotes this same passage of scripture, you are my son today I have begotten you to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul taught that this uh, begetting, begotten you, which means appointed to be a, a ruler or king, happened at Jesus' resurrection. So Christ was always destined to become king. And he acknowledged to Pilate that that this is the purpose for which I was born, he says. So he was, so even Jesus himself didn't associate this passage with his own birth, but he says, to be a king in John 18, he says, for this purpose I was born in verse 37. So he put all of that together, and it's just it's an amazing, incredible testament to God's vision and just how far he can see and how much he can control not only was Jesus rightfully the king of the Jews because he was directly descended from David, as God promised his anointed would ultimately be who would reign forever in second Samuel seven um, and the tribe of Judah, but ultimately he is he is king of kings, and his reign began as king and as high priest after his resurrection. And the Hebrew writer also quotes second Samuel seven thirteen through fourteen, which is another passage again pertaining to royalty that I mentioned just a moment ago, and then he goes on to quote another text about angels worshipping the firstborn, all right so you just continue reading, "I'll be a father to him, he shall be a son to me all right that's from second Samuel seven, and when he begin again to bring things um, excuse me when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him so again verse six there's there's an expression about birth, firstborn but biblically firstborn doesn't emphasize chronology as much as it does imminence. Okay, so what i mean by that is a lot of folks will look at that passage there and as well as Colossians 1 where Jesus is called the firstborn and they'll say see he was a created being and he was just he was born before anything else. Right, and that's what it means, firstborn. But that's not the way that the Bible actually uses that term. If you go and look at prophecy and context and how it's used, it it can mean someone uh, who was born first physically. Uh, but like the expression that came before it that we talked about a moment ago, this idea of being begotten doesn't refer exclusively to birth. Especially when you look at the context, originally it refers to establishing a king. And the and this expression in verse six, firstborn in scripture, uh, emphasizes someone's preeminence, right? So not the order that they were born, but their, their preeminence. It doesn't suggest that, again, that Christ was a created being. Rather, it's an expression to establish further what his identity, who he is. It, it speaks to his special place of honor and privilege, J- just as the firstborn of royalty had special entitlements. And, and notice, too, even angels worship him. Angels worship him. Now why is this significant? Only God is worthy of worship. That's why it's significant. Nowhere in scripture will you find authority to worship anything except God himself. And that is who Christ is and he accepted worship. And so, something this quotation is taken from Psalm 97 while others believe it's taken from Deuteronomy 32:43, but either way, the point is is that worship again is always to a greater being from a lesser being. And so if angels are worshiping Christ, then he is greater than them. And I think this has applications. I think this has applications for us today, maybe more than we realize, because, you know, personally, I've had a lot of conversations with people who are really enamored with uh, angels and wanting to know, you know, names and roles and history and, you know, really want to dig in and kind of decipher all that and there's and there is really a ton of information <clears throat> excuse me a ton of information about angels when you get looking in scripture if you just if you wanted to do a study like that on your own uh you're welcome to i have some material too and you know we want to know about seraphim and cherubim and what does all of this mean and you know how many wings they have and so on and so forth just kind of like this almost morbid interest curiosity in angels and I, you know i don't think there's anything wrong with that in and of itself it's a, it's a bible subject and uh, you know, understanding it appropriately, I think would keep us from uh, making some other errors. But what, what I'm what I'm driving at here is that the Hebrew writer is saying this is the one you need to pay attention to. Yeah, angels are 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 cool and amazing, and they've done some amazing things. They're ministers of of winds and flaming fire, is what he describes them as here. Uh, but they were all in verse fourteen. He makes the point: Are they not all ministering spirits? So he's saying, you know, he's quoting all, all this text, and he's saying, but well, they're just servants; they're they're ministers sent out what to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And so he keeps he keeps bringing us back to this central point: our Christ is is supreme, and we need to be fixated on Him and His Word that brings about salvation, not being enamored with the ins and out and minutiae of angels and their work. And again, they did some incredible things, and they are central to the revelation of God. I mean, the burning bush in Exodus 3, verses 1 through 3, I mean, sometimes they look like men, sometimes they look like women, but the point is, is that they serve the Creator, and they are not worthy of worship. And by contrast, the Son, Jesus Christ, is the Creator. He is worthy of worship. And again, so what? So what's the point of all this? Well, you just keep reading. And we end up where we started, chapter 2 and verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So this is where he's been taking us all along. The supremacy of Christ above angels, the one true God who took on flesh, delivered his gospel, revealed God's will for mankind, and then return to glory. He put salvation at our fingertips in what he did and what he revealed. And Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God to bring salvation to all who believe. And the Holy Spirit demands we ask. In verse 3, he he says, how are we going to escape? We need to ask ourselves this question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it's already been spoken by the Lord after it's already been confirmed by those who heard verses 3 and 4 God also proving it with the miracles that he empowered them to do and so the point the answer to the question is we won't how are we going to escape the answer is that we're not No, nobody will and thus faith true obedience to Christ is paramount above all things appreciate you tuning in. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.